So for the end of year holidays, I'm digging into the archives to pull out some of the two pages conversations that might best set you up for both the year that's passing and celebrating that, and also to get ready for the year that's about to arrive. This week, I'm featuring my chat with Dr. Robin Hanley-Defoe. She is really a wise woman about resilience, uh, a topic that's so easy to be, I don't know, to be glib about. You know, there's so many kind of snappy one-liners around resilience and bouncing back or bouncing forward. And I don't find Robin glib at all. I think this is a subtle and a helpful conversation about the experience of coping with hard times. So please enjoy from the vaults episode 96 called getting better at falling apart with robin henley defoe reading the self-help book that perhaps started it all what's the language you go to when you think of resilience bouncing back bouncing forward what doesn't kill you makes you stronger a regathering of yourself i like that you know, in an early book I created uh, called End Malaria, I talk about how scar tissue is the strongest tissue in the human body. Unfortunately, it turns out that's not actually true, but metaphorically, it's, uh, it's wonderful in terms of how wisdom enters through the wound, how we build resilience by bumping up against things and then recovering from it. And, you know, in my latest book, How to Begin, I talk about kintsugi, which is the Japanese art of repairing broken crockery with lacquer dusted with gold. And these pieces of crockery are actually valued more than the unbroken uh, pieces of crockery because the repair is recognized and celebrated. I know the last two years have really tested us all at all levels, you know, as individuals, as family units, as communities, as organizations, as nations, even kind of supply chains breaking down. I do think the words and the metaphors we choose to use around resilience influence how accessible that resilience is to us. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Dr. Robin Hanley Defoe has spent two decades researching, teaching, and advocating for simple and powerful language around resilience. And here's how she says it, and I, I do love this. Resilience is being okay. And her book is Calm Within the Storm, A Pathway to Everyday Resilience. Now, to speak with authority on resilience, you have had to live that experience to some extent. And Robin definitely has, since kindergarten, in fact. From my perspective, I recall being an extremely aware child. I think there were other children who were, you know, running about having a good go and, you know, kind of oblivious to all of it. And I was that child who was, you know, I noticed, I noticed everything. I noticed the child next to me, maybe who didn't have a full lunchbox. I noticed another child who was trying to live life uh, with a single parent because a parent died, right? Like I was just like, almost like omnipresent to like all of this, this stuff. And I didn't have the words for it. I didn't know what it was, but I just felt very aware of it. For many of us, the test of our resilience seems to be brought on by a specific incident, a crisis of sorts. But that's not always the case. I remember feeling othered quite early. And unlike, I think, some folks who can point to one critical incident that said, okay, that was it, and that's why that person's life went derailed, 
Mine was just a series of events. It was a series of events strung over a decade to eventually when I hit adolescence, um, that was just this perfect storm of my mental health problems getting bigger. And also my, I would say my maladaptive coping <laughs> strategies uh, getting a little bit more risky, uh, which I think is common for adolescents. I wanted to better understand the impact of the ongoing accumulation of stresses, the gradual chipping away of a sense of self, a sense of safety. So I think what happens, oh, the cumulative effect happens where we start to develop like these tolerances for how much pain and misunderstanding and things happening to us we can handle. And I think some vessels can handle it maybe a bit more effectively. And then I think there's sometimes that it just gets piled onto us. And even we might be responsible for it as well in some part as well, Michael. It's not, you know, we're not passive in this experience. And I think what happens is that threshold, we kind of pass it, where all of a sudden the weight of the world becomes heavy to carry with two hands. The weight of the world becomes heavy to carry with two hands. This rings really deep and really true for me. For some of us, it's this slow, steady erosion of safety, right? It's that slow, steady erosion where, again, I'm not feeling grounded. I'm not feeling steady. Now, for some, it's this, you know, obviously like a catastrophic event that just kind of wakes them up. But for some, I think it is that slow and steady. And I often talk about in my work and in my writing, for me, it was, again, a parallel experience. I was eroding. And then we throw in a, a catastrophic accident when I was 16 that just threw everything into this unknown how do you, I mean, how did you, rather than had as one, but how did you rebuild from catastrophe? Because one response to catastrophe is to remain broken. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really attribute part of my recovery to very much the, the, how I was raised in terms mm. of my family system, how, uh, you know, how we talked about comebacks, how we talked about rebuilding this idea of finding the right tools, finding the right person that you don't have to do this alone. So I was very fortunate, Michael, that I grew up with a parent system that were, were my allies, right? That they were right. going to stand by right. me and help me through it. So that was part of it. I think yeah. the other part is because I had been in my particular situation, I was in this catastrophic accident at 16, a person risked their life to save right. me. I did feel a, a sense of indebtedness, not only to the man who saved oh. my life, but also to, to this big thing called the world where, you know, I wanted <laughs> right. to start to try and find a way to, to pay that forward. Um, I knew what it felt like to be in the absolute darkest seasons mm. of someone's life. I knew what that felt like. It was visceral. I could, I could describe it. I knew it. And I wanted to be able to offer support or ideas to help other people find their own path. And one of the things I often, you know, want to correct sometimes when I hear people say like, oh, Robin did it so you can do it. And that's not what this is. I do not right. want to be put there. I do want to be a guide. And right. I'll show strategies that I've come upon that as somebody who has, you know, learning disability, somebody who has ADHD, I see the world differently. And the way I see the world might be helpful if I can mm. interpret that for other people who might see the world a wee bit differently too. Before we get to your, the book you're going to read from us, sure. maybe you could just ground us in, because we're, we're talking around resilience. Mm -hmm. um, what's the language you use to actually describe resilience? 
The language I use to describe resilience is very much resiliency is a verb. It's a series mm. of behaviors and actions and traits. And it's this constellation of all of the parts of us that help us weather difficult seasons. It helps us right. bounce back. It helps us move forward. And I can share with you when I first started studying it, gosh, resiliency was often talked about as mental toughness or grit mm. was really popular. Yeah. And one of the things when I was hearing all of these different theories, Michael, like there were parts of it where I was like, yeah, okay, that that makes sense from my lived experience and people who I'd met along my journey. And there were also other parts where it was like, you know, no, it's, you know, it's how, how resilient I am today might depend on how much sleep I got yesterday, right. how uh, resilient I am in certain situations is going to depend on mm. who's my, you know, who's in my corner. So I wanted yeah. to create a broader understanding, which introduced my theory of everyday resiliency. Right. I love that. Thank you. And it's so true. Like I am, I am wired to be a pretty resilient person. I have a great internal story that mm. nobody's quite sure where it comes from, <laughs> but I'm like, it's, it's, it's pretty, uh, it fuels me in a very nice way. Mm -hmm. But just recently I had a, a chronic shoulder injury that stopped me sleeping at all. Well, that's so interesting to watch myself crumble around mm -hmm. the edges around that just going look i'm i'm as well resourced as anybody <laughs> in terms mm -hmm. of mental fortitude and experience and privilege i got a whole bunch of stuff going on and just a little uh, you know a, an accumulation of poor sleep and i was like grumpy and sad yeah. and uncertain and dispirited and uh, mm -hmm. it was amazing how fast that happened and that's so common, I think, with the traditional definition with this idea that you're resilient or you're not versus mm. understanding these natural ebbs and flows that happen. So that's why I think of it more as that kind of that action. Yeah. It's a verb depending on what it looks like. And I can share with you, I recall, again, I would also echo your sentiments that I think I'm a pretty resilient person, not only from certain experiences, but when when you look at that big picture, it's like, yep, I've weathered quite a bit and I found yeah. a comeback. And I recall actually as a graduate student, actually doing a resiliency questionnaire, like a survey that was, you know, and again, standardized all the things, right? Efficacy all dialed in. And I remember scoring so poorly on this <laughs> test and remember thinking it's like, okay, so you, you know, it might be reliable in the sense that people all get similar answers, but is that actually yeah. valid? Is it true? And that yeah. was one of those moments where I realized, no, this is a living thing. This mm. idea of our resiliency, it's, it breathes, it, it depends on so many other variables. And what's right. beautiful about that understanding, I believe, is that means it can be cultivated. It can be fostered. Right. It can be taught. It can be worked upon. It can be approved yeah. upon. It's not something in concrete. Let me ask you a question about that because I want to ask that idea of cultivating and improved upon. Um, what's the balance between the hard and the soft mm -hmm. that's required for that? The 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 stress and the nurture in terms of how do you build resilience? Great, you're asking just amazing questions. I think the the reality is that every everyone's unique. Everyone's unique in terms of what that looks like, mm. and I think often when we think about the ability to be resilient in situations is that like we have the freedom to we have the freedom to choose and often we think about freedom we think about you know that there's no rules and we have all of this openness or this spaciousness but freedom's really only available to us when we practice discipline we need the discipline right. to be able to have certain things in order to be able to have that opportunity so i think it it is it's a blend it's different for everybody but it's also different depending on the situation so for example i can share with you, you know there's some situations i'm extremely resilient in i can I 
I can hold space for conflict. I can talk about difficult feelings. I can do that in some situations. And then there's other places, Michael, where my resiliency literally is like hide, right? Avoid, right. <laughs> you know, don't, don't do that. Um, yeah. So just recognizing that it, it depends. And again, mm. I know sometimes people prefer, you know, black and white answers. They prefer that definite sense of order, right. but yeah. the reality, the lived experience is messy and it's supposed to be messy. And that's part of really what makes our uniqueness is how we show up in that messiness. Well, then let me ask you this. How do I feel my way into finding what the right balance between the hard and the soft, to put it like that, yeah. might be for me in a moment? Because I can imagine, and I'm just making this up, but there's sort of some cultural assumptions you make around how you should deal with it. Like, mm -hmm. I'm a straight, white, tall man. I will mm -hmm. muscle through this. Yeah. <laughs> That's my cultural message yeah. and if you're uh if you're uh, another type of profile it might mm -hmm. be you just lie on a chaise lounge all day and mm -hmm. you know have people fan you and that's how mm -hmm. you recover yeah. but i'm wondering how you help people um kind of diagnose and find yeah. their own their own mix of of a, a process that can yeah. help strengthen their resilience what I think at the absolute end of the day, what it comes down to is asking the question whether or not this is in alignment with my values. Mm. So we sometimes are in situations, we all find ourselves in situations where we're extended, we're stretching, we're grasping, mm. we're reaching, we're trying to do all of the things all at once. And it's those moments where if we can just create that little bit of spaciousness pause to ask myself, is this in line with my values? Like, is this actually serving me because one of the things that we often talk about is that when it's not in alignment with our values then it becomes overwhelm then it becomes yeah. we need all of these other resources to, to dig deep to dial in to try and do it and that really is what starts to break us down that's mm -hmm. where we start to get weary what i think about when if it, you're doing a task that's hard or challenging or a difficult season but those things are in line with your values you don't suffer the same way it's one of those things where it's like, you know what, this is how I'm choosing to show up. This is my authentic self. And it doesn't hit us the same way. So I can give you an example that I use when I'm working with my students. So for example, like if your boss, you know, gets you up at three in the morning and says, you need to do this report, that is going to feel like, A, my boundaries are being invaded. You know, who is this? Like, I'll be resentful for the rest of the week. Except, except for my team. If They're, I tell my team, team to get up at 3 a.m. <laughs> They should, they should, they should be grateful that I'm calling them. hundred <laughs> percent. And then on the other side, you know, if one of my children wake me up at three in the morning mm. and need something of me, I'm not going to look at them in the, over the breakfast table and just be like, gosh, you know, I need to set some boundaries around you. Yeah, I want to pay rise. I want pay raise. Absolutely. Because my, my values is to be a present parent. Like that's mm. something mm. that's important to me. So again, I think often we make things really, really complex, but when we break it down to like, okay, is this in my values? We can, we can for all intents and purposes, weather seasons, as long as yes. it's in alignment of what actually matters. But unfortunately what I've seen, especially in the current global landscape, we are putting oh, so many of our, our, our energies and our resources into things that are totally not within our values. They're those things we should do or feel like we ought to do, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but we're, we're falling really far away from our true self. How did you uncover your values? 
Yeah, great question. So part of it's cultural, right? You grew up in certain households, you're presented with, you mm. know, these are the norms of the family, right? We, my family yeah. grew up with a hard work ethic, right? As immigrants, you, you learn how to work hard, you figure things out. As Scots, we're a wee bit feisty by nature, right? So there's mm -hmm. part of it that we're grown into. And yeah. then one of the things that I think, and I think about this often with our three teenagers, is that you can show them and you can yeah. live it and you can talk about it. And the real kind of, you know, the real quest is to figure out what sticks and like what mm. really is like, okay, this is what I want to think about. And how to do that work is I usually encourage people to start with like kind of exploring this idea of your signature strength. You know, mm. what is it about you that when you do that thing, you feel the most alive or you feel the most yeah. like yourself? It's effortless perhaps and, and it really energizes you because when we start thinking about where is it that we really come awake, that usually gives us a sense on what matters most. And then the real art is then making what matters most matter most. Yeah. There's a, a, a book that is probably out of print now. I came across it 20 years ago or so by a guy called, I think, Dick Richards, um, which is a great name because his name is probably Richard Richards and it's yes. like, what parent does that? Um, but the book is called, Is Your Genius at Work? And mm -hmm. it actually has a series of exercises to help just come at this, who am I and what do I really stand for? Because mm -hmm. it's, it's uh, always interesting for me to figure out what unlocks an understanding about what your values are, because mm -hmm. often at a first pass, it's like, these are inherited values mm -hmm. <laughs> or mm -hmm. I should have these values um, yeah. rather than kind of going, actually, this is actually what your lived life tells you that your, your values uh, could be. Absolutely. And I can share with you in my, again, in my own experience, you know, I, you know, I've done values work with other people, with groups and mm. corporations, like doing some of this workshopping and, you know, there's lists upon lists of values yeah, yeah. and there's always that kind of like that social desirability, like, Oh, exactly. I should value this, or I want to be somebody who values this. And the right. example I often share is, you know, sometimes I think the people who've had the bumpiest roads in life are the ones that are the most humble. And mm. I think there is a humility that it's a, it's a gift that we have this grace when you have gone through really difficult times. Mm. And, you know, if someone else would, you know, look at that list and circle humility, but, and then they don't feel it in their bones, right. then it's not going to start, you know, that won't unfold in the world the way I think that they hope it will. And I think that's always a bit of a true test. It's like, okay, mm. when you start in living in that value and invoking that value, does that feel right? Does that mm. feel right in you, in your bones? Not just because somebody says, oh, you're supposed to, you know, be a servant leader or you're supposed to be humble. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my, my, my invitation is, you know, our nature, we're quite fickle and we don't do change awfully well. So instead of trying to change and fit and adapt to try and kind of fit in with what we think should be yeah. our value, to spend some of that energy kind of exploring, you know, what is your unique value set, because that is going to be a gift you can share with the world. Yes. And as a final comment on that, I, I often think the most interesting value set are the ones where there's contradiction and tension mm -hmm. between the different values, because it's actually in the interplay yes. of the values that the, the, the richness and if you want to call it authenticity comes yes. out. So how do Agreed. you find that? And if you're trying to make all your values kind of the same-ish then there's no tension between them. And it's like, what's the point? Mm -hmm. yeah. Robin, tell us Brilliant about the idea. book you've chosen. Okay. So the book I chose, and let me tell you, this was probably the most fun exercise I've been <laughs> thrown at Michael in a wee while. So thank you for this. The book I'm My choosing pleasure. to share um, is actually Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meeting. I would say it uh, was classic. the yes. first 
first resiliency mm-hmm. book um, that I ever came across that spoke to me that really mm. helped just take everything I thought about resiliency and just completely shatter it all. And I then started my journey of unlearning. And my unlearning is what got me to where I am today. So I wanted to share that book. And another just random fact about this book that makes it so interesting to me in my story, Michael, is I was gifted this book while I was a patient, a 16-year-old patient in an adult adult psychiatric hospital. So I was 16 years old in an adult psychiatric hospital, and I was gifted this book, and it changed the way I see the world. That's a pretty great gift. That's the, the, the right gift at the right time. I love that. Exactly. Um, so I'm, I'm, thank you for sharing that. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're reading from this book. How did you choose what two pages to read? I chose these two pages because this actually one section in it, the very end of it is something that absolutely like changed fundamentally, completely transforming, transformed, sorry, the way that I saw the world. And this book was the first time I read a line that let me feel as though I was entitled, so to speak, mm. to my pain. Mm. Because when you grow up with privilege and all of these advantages and all of these opportunities, I was in this right. place at 16 where it was like, I shouldn't be sad. I shouldn't right. be depressed. I shouldn't be all the things that I was. Like, I, I should be fine. And this one passage, and at the very end of it, I'll, I'll flag afterwards which Beautiful. one it was, but it actually yeah. said, it was almost like unapologetically, Robin, the pain you feel, it's allowed to hurt. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, let me introduce you and set you up for this. Dr. Robin Henley-Defoe, reading from Victor Frankl's seminal work, Man's Search for Meaning. Robin, over to you. To discover that there was any semblance of art in a concentration camp might be surprise enough for an outsider, but he may be even more astonished to hear that one could find a sense of humor there as well. Of course, only a faint trace of one, and then only for a few seconds or minutes. Humor was another of the soul's weapons in the fight for self-preservation. It is a well-known that humor more than anything else in the human makeup can afford an aloofness and an ability to rise above any situation, even only for a few seconds. I practically trained a friend of mine who worked next to me in the building site in that concentration camp to develop a sense of humor. I suggested to him that we would promise each other to invent one amusing story a day about some incident that could happen one day after our liberation. He was a surgeon and he had been an assistant on the staff of a large hospital. So I once tried to get him to smile by describing to him how he would be unable to lose the habits of camp life once he returned to his former work. On the building site, especially when the supervisor made his tour For inspection, the foreman encouraged us by working and yelling at us, shouting, action, action. I told my friend, one day you'll be back in that operating room performing a big abdominal operation and suddenly an orderly will rush in announcing the arrival of the senior surgeon by shouting, action, action. Sometimes the other men invented amusing dreams about the future. 
such as forecasting that during a future dinner engagement, they might forget themselves when the soup is being served and beg the hostess to ladle it from the bottom. The attempt to develop a sense of humor and to see things in a humorous light is some kind of trick learned while mastering the art of living. Yet it is possible to practice the art of living even in a concentration camp. Although suffering is omnipresent, to draw an analogy, a man's suffering is similar to the behavior of gas. If the certain quantity of gas is pumped into an empty chamber, it will fill the chamber completely and evenly, no matter how big the chamber. Thus, suffering completely fills the human soul and conscious mind, no matter whether the suffering is great or little. Therefore, the size of human suffering is absolutely relative. Robin, thank you. That was lovely. I'm not sure I entirely get the ladling soup joke, but no matter, I don't think that's the most important part of the passage. Um, what feels like the, the, the truth at the heart of this for you? The heart of this is this idea that how Dr. Victor explained the gas of suffering, that when mm. you put that into a space, it doesn't matter how big the space is, it's going to fill it up completely. And therefore, it doesn't matter if it's a big problem or a little problem, it's all consuming to that person, mm. that vessel who's holding that pain, which mm. makes it that our pain is relative, but it's also ours. And it's a natural that it consumes us and it takes up all of the space, whether or not it's deserved, earned, whether we have enough privilege or shouldn't. The reality <laughs> is it's this idea that it's this reaction. It's this reaction that it completely consumes us. And that gives us, I think, insight into understanding that that empathy that when somebody mm. is hurting their whole body's hurting their whole their whole being is hurting you talked about this book and this moment being the start of unlearning for you what did you have to unlearn i think i had to unlearn a lot of the the rules along the way that i picked up in terms of what was normal what was, you know, typical? What is, you know, what do good girls do? How do good people show up in the world? Because I really, for you know, even if you go all the way back as, you know, even if you think of it like the creation story that I was shared as a child growing up in a, in a, in a religious household, you know, my creation story was there was one man and one woman, right? And the woman, well, she unleashed hell on the rest of the world because right. of her bad choices. So all the way back, I just felt as though I picked up this, like, you can't screw up. You have to be perfect. And what's amazing is even, you know, in hindsight, talking to my family system, that wasn't something that was, that was forced or pushed. No one ever told me, Michael, that I had to be perfect or there was one right way to do things. But I very much picked up that that script, that that narrative that there's a set of rules, this is a really big game, and you don't want to lose. How do you go about unlearning? I mean, yeah. it sounds neat. I've got a friend of mine, Scott, who has unlearned tattooed on his forearm, and I'm like, that's great. And you're going to got to dismantle some stuff to create yeah. the space for new stuff to grow or build or whatever the metaphor is. But it's, But, you know... These are literal connections in our brain. Mm, yeah. <laughs> how, how do you, and they don't go away just because you want to stop thinking about them. The connections mm -hmm. remain. 
Yes. How, how do you unlearn? For me, what was helpful in that process, you're absolutely right. Like we're, we're rather static in that sense that once we know something, if we even think about, you know, how we create schemas of knowledge, it's like, mm. you know, you build and you accept new information based on what we, the old information and, you know, our brains are pruning all the way through. And so I hear you. Yes, it's deep learning. We know it's there. And I think what really helps in that unlearning process is first to start exploring, like, where did these stories come from, right? Right. Like pausing enough in the present moment to start wondering, okay, like who said that? Whose voice is sharing this? And, you know, I think once you start having kind of just that kind of critical awareness of, okay, where, where did I pick that up? Um, Mm. I think that's a starting point, even just knowing where our knowledge is. And I think that's also part of like growing and our part of like learning this wisdom is that all of a sudden we realize, okay, you know, the stories we've been told, it's very important to hear who told us those stories, who lived to tell those stories. You know, that became so popular in that line in Hamilton, right? Though (laughs) who lives and dies and who tells the stories. So starting by asking who said this, where did I learn this from? Yeah. What did you, what do you wish the rest of us would unlearn about resilience? What are the stories around resilience? You're like, God damn it. I just wish, Yeah. (laughs) I wish people would stop thinking it's this. That we're bulletproof, right? That resilient people don't feel that they don't, they don't hurt, that they don't have bad days or that they, they can't have moments where we need things to be gentle and soft and Mm. we need comfort and compassion. Cause I think there is this idea that, you know, I think often the, when I hear a lot of people talk about resiliency in some, in places, Michael, they're kind of almost using resiliency, but what they're they're saying resiliency, but they're actually talking about like stoicism where we're like, okay, that's not being resilient necessarily. And, you know, I, you know, that's becoming very popular right now. Stoicism, it's like on a comeback, the band's Mm -hmm. getting back together on that one for sure. And what worries (laughs) me though, is it's like, okay, well, just don't think that, think this, don't do that, don't do this. And, you know, it's the same analogy, like, you know, when someone's upset, all right, and Mm -hmm. you say, okay, you need to calm down. I don't think that's ever worked in the history of the (laughs) world, (laughs) right? So he's like, oh, thank you for telling me that, Michael, now I'll calm down. That's the advice I was looking for. Thank you very much. Exactly, exactly. So I think it's that, just that recognition, again, that, you know, resiliency Mm -hmm. doesn't, it doesn't fit into these nice packages or these checkboxes or these questionnaires or surveys, you know, Mm -hmm. resiliency is, it's a day by day. It's the next right decision. It's this idea that, you know, I've even, you know, heard people say like, you know, don't, don't let yourself think that it's like, mm-hmm. we have zero control of what thoughts pop into our mind. Exactly. Like we actually, there's nothing we can actually do to not let that happen. So yeah. it's this idea about learning how to be, how do we respond to those thoughts and those feelings that we're experiencing? Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes I think people think if you're too emotional, that's a weakness. And it's like, well, no, we're, we're working with our biology. Um, our yeah. biology is, is quite complex. So I think that I'm mindful that's not one takeaway. It's a a big answer to your question, but I think it's this idea that resiliency is doing the best we can in the moment with the resources and tools that we have and recognizing it looks different every day. I want to pick up on your reflection on stoicism around that, you know, endure it. (laughs) Yes. I'm going to send this directly to Ryan Holiday. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But here's the question I've got for you, which is, um, how can we, how can I get better at falling apart? Great question. 
Um, totally random though, right before I jumped to that question, I remember, um, having this whole thing about stoicism is not resiliency. And then finding out that I was presenting at this virtual conference and Ryan holiday was one of the other persons. And I realized he went first and that terrified me. <laughs> and I literally was just like, Oh dear goodness, somebody needs to tell me these things. Uh, cause I mean, wanna, no, you don't want to unleash the anger I, of the stoics on you. No, I could, oh, I would, I would crumble talk about how do you fall apart? It's me in a room with the stoic, um, yeah. because I feel all of the things, all of the time. And I actually mm. welcome the circus that is yeah. all of the things all of the time. So how do we get better at falling apart? I think what the reality is, is we actually have to slow down. Mm. And I think what happens is so many of us, we're on autopilot and we're just moving so quickly that our errors or our falling apart will actually derail our life in such right. a huge way that we become scared of it. So we just keep mm. pushing harder and faster. And I often use the example, it's like, I see this especially for, you know, my heart really goes out to, to moms and dads and family systems as well. But, you know, I see during the COVID pandemic that a lot of that invisible labor we have seen has gone into, gone back onto the shoulders of women. And what happens is they're already at 90%. And then they're trying to work on top of that 90% and things yeah. just fall over the buckets pouring over. If we always are operating at the pace of a hundred percent and we have no, we have no space, Michael, for forgotten right. permission forms. We have no space for a cold. Mm -hmm. We have no space for just those little happenings that we know are going to happen in the day. Right. So right. I think giving us time to slow down and create more space is really important. It's hard to do. If I have slowed down mm -hmm. and created some space, what what guidance would you give me around just being present to my own circus, my own mm. mess? Yeah. I think that kind of, again, it ties into my my work on everyday resiliency, where we, we have that pillar about acceptance. Mm. And we spend a lot of energy kind of stuck in the past or we create a lot of anxiety about what that what we're going to look like in the future and i think there's this precious place where when we can start to co-create and coexist with some of the parts of our past that we might not like or mm. you know maybe we're not we're not the most proud of those parts of us but the reality is you know all behavior is adaptive or maladaptive right when like right. It, it all serves a purpose at the time so it's easy for us to look back for you know me as an adult to look back at my you know adolescent self and said god you should have done better robin <laughs> i right. i i was trying i was yeah, trying to the right. best that i could so i think when we get to that place and we're in that that you know that stillness to kind of slow down long enough to think about this mm. it's to meet ourselves there with compassion acceptance, mm. recognizing that, uh, you know, events happen, um, but our mistakes, those are just events. They're not characteristics. I do not right. believe we are broken people. I believe that we're people who are feeling overwhelmed with the weight of our worlds right now, but we're mm. not broken. We're just mm -hmm. overwhelmed. What do you think is the most unexpected or surprising about how you frame resilience and everyday resilience or catch people unawares? I think the biggest aha moment I have is when I do this work with children and they lean in and all of a sudden, you know, they're feeling just, you know, a wee bit more emboldened that, oh, you know, mistakes are meant to happen. You know, learning is meant to be disruptive. I'm not mm. supposed to get it right. I see the, this almost like these children being emboldened to be like, oh, there's, there's another way. And yeah. then when I see like, top athletes or leaders of huge companies, CEOs, just powerful people have the same reaction <laughs> to this that say, right. oh, I'm allowed to exhale. 
Like I'm allowed yeah. to realize that I don't have all this figured out and I, mm-hmm. you know, that there is no one right way to do this thing called life. Yeah. So I always think that if, you know, this insight is inspiring a toddler all the way up to somebody in their elderhood, I feel as though I am just so honored and privileged to be walking around just the edges, Michael, of some truth. Because mm-hmm. truth is universal. Truth does go upon the age span. It's not just for certain people. When right. it's a real truth, it, it does have that permeating effect. And that's the part that just totally fires me up, giving people almost like a permission slip mm. to not always be okay. This has been a great conversation, Robin, so thank you. Um, as, as a final question for you, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said between you and me today? I would just like to say, and what needs to be said, I believe, is that I am very grateful to you for holding space for us to have these conversations that aren't small talk. I love that <laughs> we have been able to jump into big talk. And yeah. I appreciate you creating this this community for us to be able to do it. And I think we've we've kind of small talked ourselves into this in some ways. We just, you know, how are you? I'm fine. You know, what's going mm. on? You know, nothing new, right? We talk about the weather. I love that you are creating space where we can push that aside and we can uh, we can get to the heart of some of this stuff because that's where we're going to see transformation. So Michael, what needs to be said to you is thank you for what you do. What I'm taking from this is above and beyond all else, permission. I mean, here's what I heard. I hope you heard this as well. You may have heard other things in this conversation. I'm allowed to fall apart. I don't have to be impassively stoic about life. I'm allowed to exhale and say, we're all just doing our very best to figure this complicated, messy, confusing, unpredictable life out. And I'm allowed to have conversations that are about the deeper currents of life. If you enjoyed my conversation with Robin, I thought it was wonderful. Um, I have a couple of other ones to suggest for you. Uh, Roman Krasnarek, uh, Australian, based in England, a philosopher. He, our conversation is called Hope for Tomorrow. Um, he's written so many good books. Um, his latest one is How to Be a Good Ancestor. But really, you can tap into any of Roman's books. Um, his, his, his name is spelled K-R-Z-N-A-R-I-C. So uh, lots of consonants, <laughs> but a, a lovely man. Um, and then another local, I mean, Robin um, is from Ontario, my province in Canada. So too is Ashley Good. Um, Ashley Good is somebody who gets uh, name dropped by Brene Brown occasionally. And... Um, my conversation with her was transformed by failure and you can see the connection there around or to resilience if you'd like more about robin uh she's a a well-known speaker um i think her her speaker bureau is speaker spotlight which is a used to be my speaker bureau here in toronto but to get to her directly her website is robinhd.ca so r-o-b-y-n-e-h-d dot c-a Thank you for listening to my podcast. Um, This audience is growing slowly but surely. You're playing a role in that, I'm sure. And you can help it continue to grow, both through giving the the podcast reviews and also by sending on your favorite episodes to people who you think this could become one of their favorite podcasts. That's my goal. An audience of listeners who say Two Pages with MBS is one of my favorite five podcasts. That that would be amazing. 
we there's a, a membership site. It's a little underdeveloped, but there's interviews and downloads and extra bonuses. It's totally free. It's called the Duke Humphreys, um, named after a favorite library of mine in, in Oxford. And um, you'll find that just by going to the mbs.works website and poking around, going to the podcast tab, and you'll, you'll see the membership site there. Thank you. You're awesome. And you're doing great.